Podcast One production. G'day, this is Mark Pesci. Welcome to the ninth episode of Cryptonomics, a series dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we'll learn what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. In this episode, we'll be speaking to someone who's built a successful business using the blockchain and launched one of the most successful cryptocurrencies. We'll learn how it works, why it works, and when it doesn't. The whole field of blockchain is just one week short of a decade old, but it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, including banking. And it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. That's why we're calling this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall in the price of Ethereum, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that will roll over banks, stock markets, even nations. Now, there's a lot of hype here, but some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business, and it will force businesses as old and as established as banking to make way for it. Now, I'm excited because we'll be talking to the one person that I believe more than any other is bringing that future into being. That future can be felt today, and here's how. Now, a fair few folks come to me and ask what their kids should study at uni. What they're really asking is, what skills will my kids need to succeed in this new and rapidly transforming world? And I mean, you have to admit, that's a fair question for a futurist. So you know what I tell them? They should go for one of two dual degrees either finance and computer science, or law and computer science. Why? Well, in the middle of these sits the smart contract. And the smart contract, well, that's what money and finance is becoming. You've already heard about smart contracts back in episode five. And in their simplest terms, you can think of them as money with rules. Rules that have literally been written into the money. For example, if your children receive an allowance, you could write into their allowance that until the bins get put out and the lawn mowed and the rooms cleaned, those funds can't be spent. Or, as in the case of Sydney startup CryptoFlip, you could make a wager against someone else, a winner-take-all coin toss. And both of you could play the game win and lose with no casino involved, because the rules of the wager are written into the money you're betting. Yeah, we don't think of money this way, but we're going to because in the next billion seconds, this is the way money is going to work. Money is going to be smart. It's going to have a mind of its own. It's going to be doing its own thing. And that's a very weird world, but it's right next door. Now, there's one person more than any other who is responsible for bringing this new world into being. If we're entering the age of a smart contract, then it's a fair call to say that we're entering the world created by our guest. It's fair to call him the godfather of Ethereum. And in consensus, his firm, he's putting his bets on the future of the smart contract as an integral and indispensable part of the financial and legal system of the 21st century. How he got here, where he wants to take us, that's our topic on this episode. Now, this episode is a live recording from the Chochok Wing Building at the University of Technology, Sydney, recorded on the 23rd of October, 2018. Please welcome Joe Lubin to Cryptonomics. (laughs) 
a university. You've been to university. You went to Princeton. What did you study at university? Did it have any relevance to what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. Um, electrical engineering and computer science. Okay, so there you go. So there's that foundation there. And how did that then sort of lead you into the, the world that you're in today? Because you said you left university to become a professional squash player. Um, for five minutes, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I left university because uh, when you graduate, they don't let you live there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, I, I did uh, decide to to tour around a little bit and play some squash tournaments and ended up uh, uh, back on campus. I was playing a tournament in Philadelphia about an hour away from campus and uh, uh, so I just visited some friends on campus and stayed on campus for a couple nights and uh, ended up running into a professor there mm-hmm. um, who, uh, he was a squash fan but he was also... Um, in the engineering department and he sort of ran the robotics lab and was uh, doing um, some neural nets research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had done my thesis on uh, AI. It was more symbolic AI, but uh, I was hanging out in the cognitive science laboratory uh, as a junior and as a senior. And uh, uh, the sort of rebirth of uh, the neural networks. The uh, renaissance, right. Yeah, the renaissance, renaissance uh, was happening right around then. And there was uh, uh, a a cool researcher or two uh, who uh, was building out a project and had all these uh, neural nets papers lying around and so I sort of got into that, fell into that for about 10 years and did uh, uh, work in robotics and and machine vision and neural nets and uh, so that that was the early um, phase of my tech career and got more general Uh, and then blockchain was unrelated um, or uh, sort of a natural evolution if you look at it from uh, from a certain perspective. Well, because you were building autonomous robots, right? And so autonomous robots are, they're distributed systems. They need to be able to act on their own and connect. And no, you're shaking your head because they're... Um, in a very different way. So they're autonomous systems, but they're not necessarily uh, decentralized or distributed um, compute infrastructures. Okay, so, so it's, it's very centralized. Yeah. So oh, all right. So so sort of old school. The way we we used to design robots, but robots are now more informed yeah, by was, what we understand a, by distributed a systems. Swarm or a flock. It was uh, it was just a, uh, a set of. Uh, uh, processors uh, on essentially a model vehicle, model car. Now, how did you start to make, I guess, execute not so much a pivot, but a broadening of your experience from computer science now into finance, which ended, which landed you, I guess, at Goldman Sachs? Um, so that was an accident. I, actually, I, I did work at Goldman Sachs for a while, but uh, that was still on the technology side of things. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, uh, on the IT side of private wealth management. I was uh, essentially uh, running a project that was a, a CRM project that touched on lots of different uh, um, departments. Um, and so uh, coordinating a bunch of tools to enable those tools, um, defining portfolios, rebalancing portfolios, etc., cetera, uh, for the private wealth managers so that mm-hmm. they could use those tools for their, their customers. Um, and so I, I just learned about the finance world uh, when I was there. I wasn't very finance savvy and really couldn't care about that world uh, very much. I was much more interested in science and technology and thought the other stuff was sort of a waste of time. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, I, I did uh, be, 
begin to get fascinated with it and uh, got much more deeply into it when a friend of mine, uh, after Goldman, asked me, um, he, he was basically running a strategy um, uh, in-house with a wealthy family and they got greedy, felt that they could run the strategy themselves, they chopped down his percentage and he he said, uh, I can do this on my own and, and we were actually... Um, uh, squash friends, um, just looping back because exactly I know, I know you like to do that. The story. Exactly, um, and we uh, uh, essentially he asked me to to help him build out the back office uh, of this endeavor, and we ended up. Uh, he liked. Uh, you know, um, sleeping till noon and getting up and figuring things out and placing trades at four. And uh, so having a partner uh, was really valuable to him. And we ended up, uh, he ended up asking me essentially to to be uh, effectively a partner mm -hmm. in, in that endeavor. And so we, uh, um, we ran his strategy, which was an extremely effective strategy uh, for quite a while. And that caused me to uh, start paying attention to the big game um, um, finance, economics, geopolitics, etc. Mm. because uh, we were essentially uh, managing people's money and, and it depended on knowing what was going on in the world. So as you, I guess, pivoted, transitioned, broadened from something that was more engineering science-centric to engineering science now, finance, and I guess with a much more larger global perspective, did that, is, is that when you started to see that maybe there are interesting ways to use engineering to change the way the world works? Nope. <laughs> no, no. Um, so the, the interesting thing about uh, that um, phase of my career is that it um, sort of forced me to understand what was going on, um, what systems we were all embedded in, um, uh, centralized systems, uh, monetary systems that I felt were uh, end of lifeing. Um, and so I, I began to get uh, concerned and disillusioned and then kind of depressed about the the state of uh, of the financial geopolitics. So sort of the financial system world. Is, is kind of like yeah. an ATM that's running Windows XP. Uh, right? Something like that. You know, it, it's sitting there, it's chugging along, Microsoft it, exactly. stopped supporting it about 10 years ago, pretty and much, it yeah. can be hacked pretty easily. Um, or just collapse, yeah. Or, it, or just, it, it, or just, or just stop, stop working. Stop working, it, exactly. So I, I was concerned about that, and... Uh, um, uh, I guess uh, the disillusionment led me to sort of check out for a little while. Uh, spent some time in Jamaica. Um, this, now this, this is this is quoted in your Cybos bio, and I have this image. You know, we should really have dub music filling the room, and then maybe a little ganja smoke coming in because you have this period when you were working in the music industry in Jamaica, which is this kind of trope. So, so I wasn't. I, I was uh, helping a friend uh, with her. Uh, music career and uh, wasn't working extremely hard in the music industry. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so um, it's not like I was significant in the music industry in any way down there. Um, so she had a lot of friends uh, who were significant in the music industry, mm -hmm. and, and we were able to uh, set up a little studio and and make songs and videos. Uh, so it was pretty fun. Uh, and then uh, essentially Ethereum happened, right. uh, and that. It was very hard to participate uh, intensely in the Ethereum project uh, from, from Jamaica. a small Caribbean island. Exactly. Although, given the 
tax status of many small Caribbean islands, perhaps that could have been interesting. So let, let's back up just a little bit because Ethereum is is kind of a fully evolved part of our story. But from around, so we're coming up to this 10-year anniversary of the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, what I call the ultimate internet mic drop. Hi, here's this entirely new financial system. Bye. When were you? When when did you learn about Bitcoin, DL, distributed ledger technology, blockchain, all of this? Do you remember when you learned about? Sure. It? So. Um, I encountered it uh, a very small handful of times on Slashdot in early uh, 2011. Okay. I decided I should download the, the paper and, and read it. Uh, so uh, immediately was pretty moved by it. Uh, immediately um, it kind of flipped me from, from being um, disillusioned to quite optimistic. This is not the first time I've heard someone say this. What, what was that? What is that thing? If you can think about what caused that switch to flip, what was that? Put that in words for us. Because uh, um, I felt we were in a um, a slow cascading collapse mm -hmm. of uh, economic and political systems. Mm -hmm. I felt like uh, there was much too much debt in the system than money. I felt like uh, there were two paths, three paths forward. One uh, was um, slow cascading collapse. Central bankers would kick the can down the road, uh, devalue the currencies for a very long time, and that would be uh, a very low growth uh, regime for mm. 20 years or so mm. um, as we paid off debt with uh, uh, huge buckets of devalued money. Um, the In other words, what happened in 2008 and 2009 and 2010? Yeah, it's still happening, though. Um, <laughs> so, unfortunately. Um, actually, fortunately, because hopefully we can kick the can down the road for another decade or so and then replace um, the older systems with better systems. Um, the other option was um, the collapse goes nonlinear. It, it mm. happens uh, very fast. Some sort of event happens in a contagion. Right. Uh, Which was the real havoc. danger in 2008 with the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Yes. Yeah. It happened, didn't, could have been much worse. Yeah. Um, and the third option was um, some invention, free energy, instant teleportation, uh, something like that would be a growth engine uh, that would enable us to, to grow our way uh, out of uh, I'm just looking all, all at, in case anyone in the room is working on that. Please speak to one of us afterward. This gentleman's working on that. He, okay, very he good. was like, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, we got something not quite so powerful, but maybe maybe as powerful. So blockchain uh, represents a, not an instantaneous growth engine, but uh, a way of uh, building uh, alternative infrastructure, mm. uh, building a, a different, more trustworthy foundation on which we can rebuild lots of systems. You've been listening to Joe Lubin in live conversation with Mark Pesci on the next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics. We'll be right back. We're back on the next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics in live conversation with Joe Lubin recorded at UTS on 18 October 2018. You have your moment. You take a look at distributed ledger blockchain, this entire sort of set of things that are in that original white paper. When did you start to get a sense that 
this is interesting, but it's not enough. It's the beginning, but it's not where we need to go, and it needs to grow into something that has more facility to it. In other words, that in the way that a smart contract is not just a blockchain, but it's a blockchain plus code plus a distributed commit. You know, it's got all of the pieces in it. When did you start to become aware that what we had was interesting, but that was a beginning rather than the end? Um, so I never really thought of it that way. It was always... Uh a progression. It's like, this is great. Um, and it, it came so fast. It was incredibly slow if you look back uh, from how fast things are now. But uh, um, we were very naive. These ideas were very new. We didn't understand uh, uh, what we understand now. And so it was uh, just a natural progression of ideas. Well, cryptocurrency, wow. Um, we didn't even understand that there was this thing called crypto economics. We just knew that this system, um, elegantly mechanism designed, uh, incentivizes people to contribute their resources to validate transactions, secure the network, and and make the system work. That was uh, quite a revelation mm-hmm. uh, to start with, and we were happy with that revelation. Bitcoin was going to uh, be the end all and be all. It would uh, um, transform everything. Um, in 2012 and going forward, um, lots of people uh, started to realize that uh, this is kind of a database technology and we should use this um, better, more trustworthy infrastructure um, and build not just this narrow money application on it, but we should build other sorts of systems. So uh, systems like crowdfunding or gambling or something like that. Those were those were like like the innovative use cases that that, that people people came up with back then. Um, and in order to implement those use cases, you essentially had to be a protocol priest. Mm-hmm. You you needed to um, add some opcodes at the protocol level, or you could do something um, at the client level. Um, and that just wasn't scalable uh, in in terms of human action. Um, so. Um, when when I read Vitalik's white paper, um, I read about uh, um, a proposal for a platform that would separate uh, the protocol layer from the application layer, and it was easy uh, to contemplate building developer tools, building infrastructure that would enable essentially millions of software developers to operate very happily, solving their own problems at the application layer, while the protocol priests uh, continue to improve the plumbing. Okay, so let me unroll this a little bit so that we don't lose anyone in the audience. Vitalik is Vitalik Buterin, and we'll come, we'll come to him in a second. But what you're talking about is creating, in the same way that the internet has packets going underneath it, and you kind of don't have to worry about how the packets get from point A to point B, because when they get into whatever app, whether it's a web browser or FaceTime or whatever, the application knows what they want to do with them. So you can have all of these applications using a similar, a common communications framework. You're now talking about doing that around a blockchain, where all of these blockchains can be using the same blockchain, but using it all in different ways. That's very well said. So how did you then meet Vitalik? You met him when he was 19 years old, and you know the date. Yeah, um, so January 1st, 2014, uh, like I usually do, I was visiting my parents um, at home in Toronto over Christmas. And, Good boy. And, and he's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he uh, is also a, a Torontonian or um, uh, of Russian birth. I think he left Russia around age six and grew up in Toronto. Okay, so you met this 
I'll just call it genius, 18-year-old. And he had just written a white paper in which he talked about differentiating, taking, taking this and putting this layer up so people can do all the crazy stuff they want and there can be this very stable thing underneath that provides the support for it. And what did you say to him? You're like, oh, this is a great idea. Let's go make it happen. I listened to him. <laughs> I didn't really say very much to okay. him. So I, I was, uh, uh, there was another founder of Ethereum, Anthony Diorio, who was running a meetup. He invited me uh, to listen to Vitalik. He told me that um, Vitalik, who I was aware of, because he, um, he was running something called Bitcoin Magazine. He was uh, an incredibly lucid writer. Um, and I read a lot about Bitcoin, learned a fair amount from him uh, over a year or two uh, before... I even realized that he was in high school, <laughs> essentially. Uh, um, so I was immediately very interested in, in speaking to him, went to the meetup, and we spoke for a little while. Uh, I listened uh, a bunch, and he sent me the white paper uh, that evening. I read it, and... Uh, uh, a group of people who were attracted to the project stayed in contact via Skype and, and other mechanisms for the next couple of weeks. And we uh, organized getting together in, uh, in Miami, mm -hmm. um, where Vitalik was slated to deliver his paper at the North American Bitcoin Conference, essentially announcing Ethereum. And it was, it was already a big deal. Uh, at that point, there were lots of uh, people in the blockchain space. It was a pretty tight community. I wasn't really part of that community up to that point. Uh, that was going to uh, change. My, my relationship to Bitcoin was reading uh, everything, basically, up, up, up to that point. Um, and uh, so we had this house, and there were always 20 or so people hanging around um, talking about Ethereum, and mostly Ethereum. Uh, and uh, uh, he ended up uh, delivering the talk uh, in a very big room, uh, quite a double the size of this room maybe, and uh, it was already six people deep, standing room only at mm -hmm. the back. So it, it was already happening. So it was a moment. And did that then lead to the, found, uh, the Ethereum Foundation immediately after that? Not immediately after that. Um, so we took a, we, we were actually going to do the token launch on the Tuesday after, um, after, uh, our time at, in Miami, and uh, uh, we realized that that was probably not uh, a prudent move. Uh, it looked like we were going to have lots of uh, Bitcoin nouveau riche people drop a lot of Bitcoin on the project, and uh, we didn't really have a sale mechanism, mm -hmm. and we didn't have a cold storage hot wallet system. Right. Um, and, oh, by the way, what if the SEC in the United States... Uh, uh, considers this a sale Sec of un security unregistered sale, right? securities to Americans, yep. um, and so we um, we built all that stuff, and right. um, and uh, I did uh, the bulk of the work with lawyers uh, to define what Ether was, mm -hmm. uh, define uh, what the platform was, get the the lawyers up to speed, and uh, um, create an argument um, that. Uh, um, that they got behind very strongly. It's a fairly prestigious law firm in the in the United States. Uh, um, basically, um, promoting the idea that this was essentially a consumer utility token. We we didn't call it back. I think we called it a, a utility token sometimes, mm -hmm. um, but that it would not be considered a security. security. That you weren't buying shares. In other words, because that's when the SEC would have lost their mind. All right. 
Anne has already sort of tipped her hand about the Mark Pesci token. Thank you. Um, but this is uh, the Mark Pesci token was a way to be able to think about making time liquid and what that would mean. And it was more of a thought experiment than anything else. But it was was interesting. But one of the things that made it easy to do is that when Ethereum came out, because of this stable understructure and this very mutable overstructure, it's possible now for pretty much anyone to spin up their own cryptocurrency. We call them tokens when they're when in Ethereum. And we saw a literal, it was a big bang, an explosion of all sorts of different types of tokens. And that explosion is not so much slowing down other than the SEC is sort of checking things to make sure that everyone's not selling securities, but that they're actually doing utility tokens. But we're seeing an increasing number. Or if they're selling securities, um, they're, they're registering that them. They've, that or, they've done or, the paperwork. Or there's some exemption that, yeah. that, that they're making use of. Yeah. Uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. They're making sure that people have done their homework on this. Uh, operating within the law. Yes, exactly. But we're, we are seeing an accelerating number of tokens being created for a whole bunch of different purposes, some of which are financial instruments, others of bookkeeping, others are record keeping, but just like you name it. Are we moving toward a world where the number of tokens is effectively infinite and we have a a currency, and I'm going to use that in words, quotes, because we kind of don't have, that's a placeholder word for something that we're seeing coming out, where we have that for almost every kind of thing. I, I do believe we are moving into a Mark Pesci kind of world. Um, I, there's Oh, dear Lord, people. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, it makes sense to... Um, to build these network business models, these protocol-based open platforms. Uh, Ethereum is a protocol-based open platform. Uh, you can write an application on Ethereum, and that application can itself be a protocol-based open platform. So um, we can stand up a protocol-based open platform um, that serves as infrastructure for an adjacent music industry where our artists uh, put their wares up and uh, you can get licenses and you can pay them in real time and, and you could uh, essentially build lots of businesses on that open platform. Um, that uh, sort of network business um, should probably have its own um, business logic, its own medium of exchange potentially. It shouldn't necessarily... Um, be subject to the baggage of the platform uh, on which it sits. So uh, I'm not saying Ethereum Ether has negative baggage. I'm saying that um, the dynamics of Ether shouldn't necessarily affect the dynamics of, of the value token that, uh, that glues together the ecosystems that are built upon it. Uh, and so um, makes a ton of sense for uh, any project to define its own token, whether it's a share or consumer utility token or, or uh, a digitally scarce asset like a sword or um, that you can move between games. Um, so I, I think we'll see uh, essentially a, a qualitative uh, difference uh, between um, how many tokens and how, how value tokens are created uh, in the from the legacy world to uh, this natively digital world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the problem there is that uh, we're going to have so many of these tokens. How, mm -hmm. do we, how do we deal with that? Uh, how do we deal with them effectively? And uh, I, I think that uh, probably uh, leads us to a situation where we have wallets, smart wallets, smart agents. Um, and lots of exchanges. Um, so 
uh, definitely lots of ways of um, making exchange, uh, of figuring out what exchange rates are between tokens. So uh, I could, for instance, have a wallet, um, and that enables me to prioritize um, which tokens I want to get rid of first, and uh, you'd have... That's a, the crap money I'm spending that first. This is the good money I'm holding it, on to Exactly, it. yeah. Gresham's yeah. Yeah. Uh And you would have a point of sale or something, yeah. uh, which... Um, indicated which ones you'd want to receive first and our wallets would talk to one another. I wouldn't even think about whether I want to use Beyonce tickets or Euro or, or banana tokens yep. or, or anything like that. Um, I would just think, hey, I want to buy that thing and uh, my intelligent agent would converse with yours. And, uh, they would we'd, haggle. We'd get that. They'd haggle maybe. We'd get that done if we didn't have uh, an effective... Um, mapping between our, our two wallets, mm -hmm. um, then we could go off to uh, a service and, and have them uh, make an exchange and take a, a, little, um, a little fee in order to get that transaction done. It really abstracts things. So yes, there are so many more tokens, but we're not really thinking about those tokens so much anymore. Yeah, that's also true. One of the things this is pointing up is that it's very easy to get systems that are quite rich, and I mean that in the sense of having lots of pieces. And, and we saw very early on uh, the uh, digital autonomous organization. more pieces than the Federal Reserve System? Probably I mean, not. Yeah, I mean, banking Probably. infrastructure, and I mean, those are... But those pieces are, how shall I put it, reasonably well debugged. And... You really, you really want to well. stick with that? <laughs> Let's drop it. <laughs> in, the, in the sense that they've failed several times and been fixed, uh, which is how almost all debugging works. We have the example of the Digital Autonomous Organization, which I thought was an amazing project, which is essentially a venture capital fund that raised about $150 million in Ether. That it could then, the members who had put that money in could then nominate the projects that they wanted to invest in, and then there would essentially be no carry, which is the percentage that a venture capitalist gets from earns on, earnings on their investment. And it was designed to be decentralized, there was no board or anything like this, and, and they flipped a the switch on it, and within six hours, Bugs had been found, I think, both in the code and in the Ethereum layer underneath. I'm, I'm, there were no, no bugs in the Ethereum layer underneath? Definitely not. Okay. So bugs were found in the code, and someone had managed to siphon away $50 million from this so project. So it, did, it didn't happen that fast. Um, uh, what did happen fast was uh, a call to halt this crazy project. Um, so... Uh, I mean, Gun Sir uh, at Cornell and uh, Vlad Zemfir and another guy um, wrote a paper uh, called to, to sort of suspend the activity because uh, uh, they were concerned that something was going to go very wrong. And um, Emin had a grad student, I'm forgetting which one it was, who, uh, who identified the actual flaw, mm. but they looked at it and they couldn't figure out a way to, to really exploit it. Uh, so they were like, no, it's not... Not a big deal at this point, but uh, uh, a lot of people were very concerned. Um, some people at Consensus were very excited about the project, and I, I was excited about the project just because it was this this big thing. Uh, but I also was much more concerned about the project than excited, and I would rather have not had it um, foisted onto the world so early. I, I thought we weren't really ready for something that big. I mean, what does that tell us about being... 
humble enough to start with small things and get those working well before we go on so, to big things. Um, the people who put that project together didn't anticipate that it would grow so quickly. That it would, would be so successful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so um, they were running an experiment. They uh, thought that they could uh, essentially fund their their project through it, uh, slock it, mm -hmm. uh, and other projects too. So it was uh, it was a way to to fund what they wanted to do and um, essentially run a very interesting experiment at the same time. They they tried to be prudent about it. Um, they clearly didn't security audit it um, mm -hmm. as well as they should have and it's some smart people on the project um, mm -hmm. uh, it is but six so, so unlikely that uh, that something like that would get through right now because we've got uh, just a lot more expertise in, in security auditing projects like that now, one of my friends who's very smart in this space, I asked him before he went live, he said, Mark, it's 6,000 lines of code when was the last time you wrote 6,000 lines with no bugs? And I was like, mm, well, there we are. Okay, you've mentioned consensus. So uh, you get Ethereum off the ground. How soon afterward do you start consensus? And what is, I mean, blockchain venture studio is what you call it. What does that mean? Sure. Um, a year into the Ethereum project, um, we were getting close to, I thought we were getting close to launching the platform. Uh, and that's roughly when I started contemplating at least and, and putting a small number of people together mm -hmm. uh, to form consensus. Uh, so it really did start officially, legally in late 2014, but we really, really got going in 2015. Um, it was essentially because we were, um, there was nobody or very few people were building anything at the application layer. So mm -hmm. we we're going to release this platform and there wasn't going to be a lot going on on the platform. So figured I'd get started uh, in, in doing some of that. Uh, it ended up being um, a bunch more months uh, before the platform was actually released. Uh, so we ended up uh, operating for quite a while, uh, essentially on test nets mm -hmm. and no, no real platform, no real ecosystem. Okay, all right. So you, you, mean you got in there in preparation for being able to build applications. Yeah, so um, we thought it was... It was uh, two weeks away, <laughs> um, the, the launch of the platform. But uh, th those two weeks uh, um, multiplied uh, quite a bit. So what kinds of applications are you focused on building on this platform at Consensus? Uh, many. Uh, so we uh, build developer tools like the Truffle Suite. Uh, we uh, have been responsible for building three of the clients, uh, the Java client, the Haskell client, and the next Java client, uh, which will um, be officially announced very soon, uh, a few days from now. Um, we um, built infrastructure like Infura and MetaMask, enabling people to uh, essentially release and access applications from the browser. Uh, in the olden days, if you wanted to get your client to, to use your application, not that there were that many applications out there, but uh, uh, what you essentially had to do was um, tell your customer uh, to go to GitHub and download the Ethereum client and yep. wait for eight hours or three days well, for it to sync. The and then, yes. then you can type your, your URL uh, into the browser and uh, you would connect uh, on the machine via RPC or IPC. And uh, that, that's the way um, 
of course, to, to build a healthy ecosystem. Um, Hands up the number of people in this room who did that. Bless you That's all. That's a lot of people. That's yeah. great. Wow. It's a good room. Um, so MetaMask and Infura have made that easier. Um, um, and Infura is a, a tremendous tool, um, an amazing team that uh, powers a lot of our ecosystem, but uh, uh, we're working pretty hard to try to decentralize all of that, to, to turn Infura into a protocol so that uh, it, it's not a bottleneck uh, for our industry. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Um, we started out with the idea of being a venture production studio, uh, and we were essentially going to build some POCs, uh, um, wrap a company around them, and, and put them out for external investment, and, and that's how we would grow. Mm -hmm. uh, and we started with uh, an accounting system and a DAP store, uh, some other uh, proof of location application, uh, other little experiments. Um, we realized that we... The guy who was building the DAP store, Tim Coulter, um, started building these scripts um, to enable him to more efficiently develop, and that turned into Truffle Suite. So um, that's his main focus. It's been his main focus for a long time. Um, the Infura team uh, started by building test networks for our, our different uh, internal projects, and by the, the time of DevCon 2 in Shanghai, uh, they decided to externalize that to, to enable third-party projects to to make use of that infrastructure, and it's it's gone through many different iterations over time. Um, so it's been um, of necessity that we built lots of these things. Um, the venture production studio uh, continues. It's one of our four focuses, uh, and we have a group called Labs that uh, identifies projects externally, brings them in-house. Um, we identify projects in various ways internally, and um, we... Uh, ask them to present their ideas to a resource allocation circle and uh, and perhaps fund those projects. So uh, Labs is uh, is good at taking projects and, and helping them mature. Uh, and uh, some of them can mature to the point where they're commercially successful, uh, to the point where they externalize, maybe get some venture capital, or uh, potentially token launch themselves. And so we have we have a group called Token Foundry uh, that helps with consumer utility tokens, and another group uh, that's spinning out of Token Foundry that's uh, called Consensus Digital Securities. Uh, okay, so here we are sort of crossing the line back again into finance from computer science. But a lot of what you've talked about is building basic infrastructure to, so that we, you and we everyone else can build things. Which, I, which makes sense, because if this is now an entirely new foundation for an entirely new kind of computer science, which is kind of how we're thinking of it now, then we are going to have a new level of tools invention. And I mean, we saw this again in the 1970s with microcomputing, and then in the 1990s with the web, where you saw completely new tools infrastructures for every new thing that was coming along. So, so networking before that, and then the web, and then mobile. And yeah, absolutely. All right. Now, you see smart contracts as a force for good in the world. Could you explain what you mean by that? Did I say that? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can... I do you want to own that? Or I, I, I don't want to put words that, in your mouth. Sure. Um, so I see it as a technology that could be used for 
mostly good, but potentially evil mm. as well. Um, and guns point both ways, absolutely. Sure. Um, so I see it as a revolution. Uh, blockchain, smart contracts built on blockchains, a, a revolution in the trust infrastructure. Uh, so essentially we've... Uh, built societies, um, societies are systems of rules and ledgers, um, and those rules are defined by people, uh, and, um, implemented, uh, enforced, um, sometimes well, uh, sometimes capriciously by these top-down command and control infrastructures mm -hmm. where you have either a monarch or elected leaders, uh, who operate through, um, a pyramid of, uh, of different actors that uh, are essentially under that singular control. Um, and it works reasonably well in, in many places. I, I think uh, it's the optimal organizing principle uh, when communication is slow and expensive and decision-making is therefore slow and expensive, but we have uh, tremendous communication networks now and we have this breakthrough technology that enables us to make decisions uh, within 10 minutes or 15 seconds, depending on your platform, uh, soon, soon even uh, more quickly, um, even if up to half of the actors in your system are malicious. Oh, are so bad, right. With these consensus, these decision-making algorithms. And so uh, we can start to uh, contemplate uh, what it's like to, to have uh, flatter organizations. Uh, so and presumably not, not also talking. more transparent. In other words, inspectably Absolutely. transparent yeah. around the, how the decision is made. Exactly. And, and so um, blockchain smart contracts uh, essentially turn subjective um, trust into automated trust and uh, essentially guaranteed execution of the rule systems or the agreements that we make. Uh, so rule systems meaning potentially laws or rules on one of those network business model um, protocol-based open platforms, um, agreements in the form of potentially legally enforceable agreements. We have a project called Open Law that uh, uh, type Open Law into YouTube. There's, there's a whole bunch of really cool demos um, that essentially uh, enable us to uh, move lots of the expense um, into uh, these agreements on the blockchain. And you can uh, you can post the whole agreement on the blockchain so that it's uh, visible, it's transparent, or you can create a digital digest of an agreement and, and create uh, signatures um, to that agreement and, and post that to the blockchain, essentially memorializing, timestamping that that agreement was in place without disclosing any of the, uh, the, the details, details of that agreement. And so um, we're moving from a world of... Uh, these static agreements to a world in which these agreements can be dynamic. They can be um, clauses of prose and some clauses of uh, programmatic elements. Uh, we can escrow money into them. We can send data into them, and, and they can act uh, when certain conditions are met. And so, uh, pretty, pretty exciting um, way of. Uh, slowly, very carefully, in layers, uh, architecting things. So we, we built uh, um, thousands of years of technology in, in different niches, in law, in accounting, in materials science, and building science, and uh, now we can basically take all of that and uh, potentially reposition it on a, 
a much less flimsy, much less subjective foundation, a, a trust layer. What does the future look like? In what time frame do we start to see smart contracts and this sort of evolution into this new system become a significant force economically and culturally? You know, I mean, again, I think in the billion time, a billion second time frame, so that's 30 years. And I can see 30 years from now, absolutely, but is it closer than that? Uh, depends who you are. Uh, for people I know, it's happening now. Um, you know, you uh, run so, in so, a fast so we're, crowd, though. We're, yeah, we're building the infrastructure uh, that uh, will enable uh, essentially the evolution of the internet, the evolution of the web. Um, the internet uh, and the web uh, have been about information. Uh, they've been about e-commerce and um, social. Um, but blockchain will, because of this trust layer, um, will enable uh, natively digital elements uh, to be the foundational elements of our society. So uh, it can be money, it can be identity and reputation and legal enforceable agreements and certificates, uh, other kinds of, uh, Piece fi of art. Fi financial instruments. Uh, so yeah. all of the uh, elements uh, that we use that have uh, essentially analog elements, frictional elements, uh, um, when they're involved in transactions, those transactions clear and settle over hours, days, and weeks. And um, now they're uh, going to be able to clear in the instant of the transaction. And so that's, that's going to be uh, quite transformative. The people who are using uh, these thousand different components that we're building and maturing um, are builders. Uh, so they're, they're the people who are building um, the next better system or are composing five of these things into uh, something that other builders can use. Uh, we're, we're certainly going to have some breakthroughs um, in gaming, uh, perhaps in journalism, perhaps in other spaces where uh, more normal human beings start to use uh, uh, blockchain-based systems. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I'm pretty happy for us to, uh, to focus on... Um, another year or two of of the infrastructure um, and uh, the consumers will come. So 2020, 2021, not that far out. Sort of 100 million okay, seconds we'll, rather than we'll a billion. We'll have some, uh, some exciting consumer breakthroughs in 2019, uh, but it'll be um, around the edges. It'll be safer things. It, yeah. it, you know, it could be lending, um, could be insurance, uh, will definitely be gaming, mm. um, will be exchanges. Um, the civil project is uh, one of what I think is the most important projects uh, around because uh, um, the journalism industry is um, morally bankrupt. It's, uh, it's collapsing. Um, it's got some the, problems. The business models are collapsing. It's not sustainable. It's not ethical. And uh, um, uh, a platform like Civil can uh, maybe focus our attention on it and uh, uh, give different newsrooms that commit to being ethical uh, mm -hmm. a boost, potentially. If you were answering a parent today to say, what should my kids be studying when they go to uni, what would you say to them? Um, so I think the, the most powerful... Degrees are mathematics, physics, um, computer science. Uh, so if you're good at one or all three of those, you can apply that to, to roughly anything. Um, but really just you should study what you love probably. 
but, but very, get, get some of those tools too. Very good advice. Ladies and gentlemen, let's all thank Joe Lubin. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Joe Lubin or Consensus or Ethereum, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Now, this very special episode of Cryptonomics wouldn't have been possible without a lot of support. At the University of Technology Sydney, I'd like to thank Margaret Petty, Mary Lou Costa, Aura Lee, Anne Scherfer, and Glenn Whitewick. At the City of Sydney, who arranged this interview, Alex Curtis and Victoria Moxley, part of the city's economic development team and producing the Visiting Entrepreneurs Program. At Southern Cross Stereo, Cameron Roberts for his wonderful live mix, and of course, my awesome producer, Alex Mitchell. The next billion seconds, Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. <laughs>